0: Hi, my name is Andy Day. I'm the CEO and founder of Capital A and welcome to MA QA. Q&A. Today we have Duncan Edwards, former CEO of Hearst UK, ex-president and CEO of Hearst International. Duncan rose through the ranks of Nat Mags as Hearst was previously known in the UK before becoming CEO and was responsible for the transformation of the business by multiple magazine titles set Hearst squarely up as a competitor of Time and Condé Nast. He was responsible for a $1 billion acquisition, I'll say that again, a $1 billion acquisition involving 100 magazine titles from the guard, which included the then popular website Digital Spy, which helped Duncan transform the declining magazine business into the digital powerhouse it is today. Duncan has been in the media industry since 1985, joining Media Week shortly after it launched, and spent four years in various roles there. But he has spent a big chunk of his career at Hearst and was involved in numerous acquisitions. We'll get to hear about all the juicy bits as well as what he's up to now, as CEO of British American Business, where he's helping to maintain business relationships in Washington and London. He's an all around good guy as well as being a media behemoth with experience in M and A, in media and marketing. And I'm sure we can all learn something from him. I first met Duncan. Ten years ago, when he was looking at buying my business, I'm super chuffed to have him on m and Q and A today. Duncan, welcome. How are you doing? Yeah,
1: I'm well, thanks, Andy. It's good to see you, and thanks for asking me onto your show.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure, a pleasure. Like I said, it was there uh, probably about ten, ten years ago. Or so we first met. Yeah, um, that's right. Maybe a bit, maybe a bit more. I don't know. Was was I living in the states by
1: then, or was I still in the UK? I can't remember.
0: Mm, I don't know. You uh, it was in some big conference room at the top of Natmeg's Tower. I think yeah. it was before before Natmeg's became Hearst. So yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I moved to the United States in 2009 full-time, although, of course, I still was responsible for the UK's business then uh, until I left Hearst at the end of 2016. So right. it could have been then. We looked at a lot of businesses.
0: <laughs> yeah, you did. Well, let's kick off first with a, a quick background check when you're done. Can we do this every week with our guests? So we'd like to know exactly how you got into the business. It pretty much looks like you've been at Hearst forever. But um, did you just leave uni and go straight into media week? um, Yes, I did. I mean, I I, I suppose,
1: in truth, I had an original ambition or kind of idea of being a journalist. That was kind of my original kind of concept. Mm. And I came out of university in 1985. And I, you know, I... To be honest, I didn't really fancy going back and studying anymore or doing a post-grad in journalism. So I took a job at uh, Media Week, which had just launched in that February of 85, and I I joined the ad sales team of Media Week. In in those days, it was a classic way of recruiting out of an ad in The Guardian for ad sales people. I not really had a clue what to expect but I showed up at a little townhouse in Covent Garden on Wellington Street and got hired and uh, started selling initially uh, recruitment advertising in the back of Media Week and stayed there for four years and uh, had an absolute blast, to be honest. It was a great, great, it was a startup, you know, and many of the things that are attractive about startups today Were just as attractive about startups in the in the in the eighties. It was a super dynamic place to work, and if you were a if you were a sort of curious kid as I was, it gave you the chance to get involved in everything. So I had a terrific four years there before I left and went to to Hearst or NatMag as it was called in those days.
0: Yeah, amazing. So that was pretty lucky as well. So you relocated to London from Sheffield Uni. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm from Watford originally, so oh, okay. So yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm too much a mystery into London.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, but it was it was such a great place because media as a discipline in advertising was really emerging at that time from out of the ad agencies, and before that had been a sort of a bit of a backwater of of ad agency la- land, and it was really emerging, and the the foundation of media specialists like uh, the media business and TMD and CIA and all these these uh, media independents and media specialists were all emerging and yeah media week caught the wave of that as well as I mean it's funny to think about it now but there was an explosion in media i mean we went from three national tv channels to four um with the with the launch of channel 4 and breakfast television and all that sort of thing and i remember all of this happening and yeah launches of newspapers so it felt like there was an explosion in media opportunities and, yeah. and, and the whole world of media and, and Media Week, the magazine, the trade mag was right at the heart of that. So it's a great place yeah. to be at that time.
0: Incredibly hip mag as well to be involved in. Very cool mag.
1: Yeah, it was. And, and it was fun. And um, we, as a sales team, we needed to know everyone. And we were young, but we we got out there and knew everybody, went to everything that we were invited to and really networked around. And, uh, you know, I've got I've got friends now, 35 years later or more, who I made in that first two or three years at Media Week. It was a great place to start.
0: So, uh, yeah, and incredibly lucky to jump to Nat, Nat uh straight away as well. It seems... Like an unstoppable rise at, at NatMags. But what what initially caused you to leave MediaWeek? And go there? You just kind of run run through every startup job that was available at Media Week? Yeah, I mean the, that's the problem, isn't
1: it? I mean uh, MediaWeek was was great, but it was small, and you know I was running the sales organisation, and you know I kind of run out of road. So. To be honest, also, I was given good advice by the the, C, the, the Managing Director of, of Media Week, who was one of the founders, a guy called John Theta, and Tim Brooks, actually, who went on to have a really big media career himself. And they suggested that I should think about moving on. And, you know, I was a bit kind of what? affronted about that at the time. But as a 25-year-old, it was really good advice. So I did. And, um, you know, the good thing about Media Week is that other job opportunities were also your clients. So all of the other media companies were clients of ours, you know, advertising clients. So I knew them all. And I'd always liked what I saw about NatMag, as it was called. I thought it was a terrific publishing company, great brand, good people. And so I made it my task to get a job there. And I ended up as the uh, sales director of one of the magazines, uh, company magazine, sadly no longer with us. And uh, I joined there in 1989.
0: So, yeah, and also quite amazing, really. That, but nobody ever told you to move on at Hurst. I guess. You just stayed there for quite a, quite a long time. But Well, you know, th- yeah. So, I mean, I was
1: lucky to have multiple opportunities. And at any point that I was beginning to feel a little bit like I'd done it, mm. there was something new. Certainly that was the case as I was rising up through the ranks. And then when I was the... Um, head of the company in the UK, then you kind of set your own agenda. And so, in my view, that's what CEOs have to do to, you know, to create your own reason to stay, you know, by being innovative and and setting yourself new
0: challenges. And I certainly did that. Yeah, uh, I mean, your rise through NatMags, as Hearst was known then, uh, seemed pretty quick. Uh, I guess it was 10 years. though. Yeah, and I was, was there
1: in 89. Or... I joined and I suppose I got... I got touched on the shoulder as the successor to the long-term CEO, Terry Mansfield, in about 2000, in about, sorry, 1999, around then. I can't remember exactly, but it was around 10 years after I was at the company. And uh, I I served an apprenticeship to Terry for a couple of years before becoming the head of the company.
0: Brilliant. And I mean, you transformed NatMags. The the, the NatMags business, um, I mean, changed incredibly quickly. After you took control, yeah, and you went into the the women's weekly market, which was a, a fierce business in the UK. But but again, it must be a, an amazing story behind that. You launched some of those titles yourself, so they were. I, I can't remember exactly the titles that you created.
1: Reveal, but. real people, these things. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, mean, and, uh,
0: I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story. So when
1: I was the sort of deputy CEO. Yeah. You know, I, I I really started to think about how we could change this business because it was it was a nice business, you know, moderately profitable, you know, but a definitely a second tier business in the UK magazine market, and it was my sense that there was an opportunity to consolidate a whole bunch of other magazine companies in the UK and to build a really strong competitor to the big players that were at that time, IPC and EMAP. And so that's what we did. And we, 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 had a, we had a list of companies that we wanted to, that I thought we could and should try to buy. And then we went out and got them. And there were some small businesses. There was a specialist wedding magazine business called AIM Publications, which we bought. We did the phased acquisition of the Rodale business. That was men's health. We beat IPC to the acquisition of the Gruner and Yar businesses in the UK. That was Prima and Best and others. And then we did a joint venture with ACP, the US, uh, the Australian, um, the old Kerry Packer business to launch Reveal and Real People. Yeah, so I mean, and it was all planned. I mean, we there was a couple that we missed, including funny enough, the air business, which uh, you know, I tried to buy that as the independent UK company a couple of times and got rebuffed. But we ended up doing that uh, a few years later when I was in the US as a global acquisition, as you mentioned earlier. But so that was what we did. We had a very, very clear vision that we wanted to be a consolidator of quality brands in the magazine business. And that's what we did and uh, went and created a very profitable company
0: as a result. Can you remember any of those deals in particular, Duncan? I know it's a while ago now, but was is there like an example of how those deals were structured, for instance, or, or anything you remember about that sort of technical? Well,
1: they were all different, to be honest. They were all different. So with AIM, which was a smallish deal, we were dealing with a founder, uh, an individual. So the acquisition was quite, the sale, if you like, was quite emotional for him. And, you know, it had... It had that had an that had an initial purchase price with an earnout and we can talk about whether that makes sense or not because there were some issues with that. Uh G and J, the acquisition of Gruner and Yar was actually a very interesting story because we'd talked to the owners of G&J in the UK in Germany in Paris and we thought that we would have been their preferred buyer when they turned when they decided to sell. But we found out actually there's a story in The Guardian saying that IPC was about to buy or was just about to close the transaction to buy Gruner & And so I was stunned by this. And I, we phoned up G&J headquarters and said, is this true? And they said, yes. And we said, well, look, if we can do the deal in the next three days, will you sell it to us? <laughs>
0: wow.
1: And that's exactly what we did. So um, we flew. We, I, I went on, the. I think, the last month of Concorde, we <laughs> went to New York together with the management of G&J, it was helped by the fact that Hearst, family, Hearst at the most senior level had a very good relationship with the most senior level in Bertelsmann and the owners of uh, g and And we went and we worked over the weekend. We did the DD. I flew back on Saturday and did the due diligence on the Sunday and just looked at the printing contracts, the paper. You know What, what, what could you do? You had to do it so quickly.
0: That's and the, then we signed the contract. Terribly uh, sloppy of IPC to leave the door open for you like that. They didn't have any exclusivity clause in there to stop anybody coming in and stealing it from them? No, and they had tried to chisel away at the
1: price at the last minute. That's why, right. that's why they gave us the chance to get in there. And so we bought it from underneath them. I think the Rodale transaction was probably one of the most interesting. So uh, Rodale had a wholly owned business in the UK, publishing Men's Health. Mm-hmm. Pretty good business and Runner's World and a couple of other things. Pretty nice business, but too small. And so it didn't have enough scale to you know, be a standalone operation. <laughs> so we did the math on this and, and worked out that you know, basically, if Rodale sold half of their business to us, and we ran it, they would make more money owning half the business than they did own, owning the whole of it. And that turned out to be correct. Um, I did joke to the uh, Rodale owners at the time that maybe they should pay us for buying half their equity <laughs> in this business, because they were going to be better off. I mean, and the, and the maths would have supported that. but. Uh, that didn't happen in the end, it it. and it turned out to be a, a truly fa- that turned out to be a truly fantastic deal, both for Rodale and the Rodale family, and for us. Mm. Uh, well, and
0: men, mental was support, mental support an iconic title, and what? How did that? How did you manage to, to do that? And you took out all of their costs, obviously, and just spread them across the, the Hearst business. It just how, how did that work? Yeah,
1: I mean, on 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 those, those acquisitions and. Um, yeah, Rodale was a good example. We bought across, I think, two or three magazines and some uh, bookazines and some, um, actually, some quite interesting early stage digital products. And we took none of the back office. I mean, zero. So we we didn't take the office. We didn't take the you know management, the top management. The yeah, we we just we just took the gross margin only. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly in those days, these businesses were very profitable at the gross margin level, very, very profitable. So, you know, you could you could easily have a 40 to 50 percent margin at gross margin level. So you're moving, you're moving, you know, just what you're moving across drops straight to the bottom line. So yeah, can you, and can you uh, remember, we did that a um, few times.
0: Can you remember any of the uh, sort of valuations or how you worked out how much you would pay for them? Obviously, now, now it's, it's always like multiples of EBITDA, particularly around marketing agencies or comms agencies. Obviously, media is slightly different. It's probably multiple of uh, revenue. But, but can you remember how you were working out what you would pay? Yes.
1: I mean, um, we, we, we would do the sort of classic valuations based on the current value of f- future cash flows. So, we would do a discounted cash flow analysis, which we would then have to present up to get approval for these acquisitions. You know ebitDA multiples in those days were i guess quite i mean you wouldn't you wouldn't pay them for today's uh, magazine businesses, but you you know yeah anything around the ten multiple of eBITDAs was was going to get you into the game, and then you know you'd see. Uh, I mean, in the, in the end, we felt if the business was worth having, it was worth paying a full price for it, yeah. you know, because if, if the business is no good, then you can't pay too little, frankly. And if the business is really good, then, yeah, really push yourself to pay the full price that you can, because otherwise you won't win it. And so, you know, that's, that's, that was our approach. And when you say really good,
0: do you mean like uh, in terms of like a gut feel for how it fits within the, the the big the business, the large business, or do you mean just from a financial perspective?
1: No, I think you have to start with a vision. I mean,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I I I certainly never started just with a. I mean, I'm sure there are people who built brilliant businesses just starting, you know, just based on the on the on the financials. But that's certainly not me. I'm an operator, and uh, i I was always thinking about you know does does this fit within our organization do we have the people to run it? do we know the potential customers? is this an additional thing that we can sell to our existing customers? yeah so I was always thinking about about fit and then making them making the the financials work rather than the financials first and look I, I would be pretty disciplined about this. I would write a fairly lengthy and detailed acquisition document that would set out the rationale for the, the purchase. Why do we want to do this? What, what do we, why, why does this make sense for the business? And then go through every part of that, you know, thinking about future management, the integration of the business, the integration costs, the synergies that you're going to get as a result. And all of the above. So i i would be I would be pretty detailed about that.
0: Okay, brilliant. So, I mean, there's there's probably tons of stories in there, but um, only so much time. So, you transformed the magazine business as it was in the, in the sort of early noughties. But it wasn't long before the internet came along and started to slowly kill it off. Could you tell us a little bit about that period? Was it at all obvious to you at first what was slow magazine sales down? Do you remember any of that sort of, sort of first sort of sniff of the internet coming and eating your lunch?
1: Well, the, the irony is that probably one of the most successful periods in terms of profitability and sales for the print magazine business came right at the end, <laughs> just <laughs> before just before the internet. Kind of killed it, and I think it was really the mobile internet, by the way, that killed the print magazine business, right. not the internet itself. It was the the iPhone five, I think, really, and the technology and speed of connectivity of the iPhone five together with the kind of the media that was available on that device that was really the the um, the killer. but yeah, look, we weren't stupid. we knew we knew we knew something was happening, and we could see that but like every other you know print media business pretty much we didn't want to exit our business in order to get into that business or we couldn't find a way of doing it so we were trying to run two things in parallel i mean maybe it's easy to be wise after the event but we you know we 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 tried lots of things i remember we decided in in the uk or i decided that we should we should try to get into that business we made a couple of acquisitions we bought a very interesting Consumer health site called NetDoctor, which I still think could have been a great business for Hearst in the UK, and I'm disappointed they didn't they didn't make more of that. We also bought a women's uh, site, Handbag.com, um, in the which was very hot at the time in the UK. It was very hot, more on its potential than its uh, than the reality of it. But so we made these two acquisitions. And at the same time, in the US, Hearst had been exploring the uh, big women's portal of women.com. and uh, anyway, all of these things are now parts of digital history, of course. And uh, <laughs> um, but they were worth
0: trying. Yeah, and can you again? Can you can you remember maybe what the the multiples were that you were paying? I mean, it must have been inexpensive thing to do to go after those big titles, particularly things like handbag, which were really sort of high profile. They, they listen, they were they were they were not profitable.
1: So you were paying kind of a multiple of revenues or a multiple of losses, depending on how you, how you phrase it. And uh in the in the great scheme of things, it was a it was it was perfectly acceptable to make those kind of bets. You know, They weren't hundreds of millions. They were a few millions of, of pounds. And interestingly enough, certainly, certainly NetDoctor had, yeah, had a pretty robust business model at the time. But you know, and I, and I say this against ourselves at Hearst, we didn't put the focus on it that we should have done after we bought it. And so that got swamped out by other consumer health prop, uh, propositions.
0: And that was pretty much a, a separate business from, from what I remember. So it was like Hearst Digital, which was a digital business. And then you continued with the print separately. But obviously over time, you then digitalized yeah. all of those magazine files that you had. We did. So, so what was this the strategy was buy a couple of digital businesses sort of as a taster and then to, to transform the rest of the business? How how did that how did that work? What was the thinking behind it? Because you got um as part of one of your your big Deals. I think the, the, the billion dollar deal, didn't you acquire Digital Spy as well? We did. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we
1: did. I mean, and it would be, it would be, <laughs> um, wouldn't be entirely honest to say that we bought that business because of Digital Spy, but it ended up being a very important part of the acquisition, yeah. less because of the revenues and earnings, but more because of the approach to digital publishing that we learned. When we acquired Digital Spy. In fact, the platform that ended up underpinning uh, the whole of Hearst's global consumer digital publishing came from that uh, Digital Spy platform. So it was the technology and the speed of publishing that we picked up from that. You know, we had, you know, and, and it anyone who had worked in that old old line magazine business knew this was a problem. You know, you didn't have immediacy in publishing kind of mentality. Mm. Certainly not in the monthlies. Weeklies were a bit better. You were running on a weekly. You know, you, you publish once a week. And we 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 started. We realized that we had to completely change the mentality of how we published. And we as we had a mantra internally which we called going from months to moments. So. Yeah, we and we needed a platform that would enable us to publish like now and uh, immediately, and we found that inside the company at Digital Spy, and so we used that. We rolled out that platform, what we called Media OS. We rolled that out across the whole of the US, UK, and many of the international businesses, uh, magazine businesses that we own. So globally cosmopolitan for example, is published on Media OS, and the same with, with many of the other uh, Hearst uh, media
0: assets. At least I think they still are. It's been a while since I've been there, of course. So, so you went from months to moments, and that, then was there continuous sort of innovation after that? Did did you pivot to video, or was there, was there anything else that happened? Yeah,
1: like? there's been lots of attempts at video. Um, again, we realized it's quite interesting as well, because we you know, magazine publishing companies give a lot of, and um, un- rightly so, invest a lot of importance in the editors, you know, the creative brains of these great titles and businesses. But we realized, and you had to realize, that these people may not be the right people to produce different kinds of content, audiovisual content, Kind of immediate content rather than kind of monthly content, and so it was it became a, 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 an operational challenge more than anything else. How do you, how do you do this? How how do you how do you publish content that's packaged right for a batch delivered product, which is what a a magazine is. You know, you bring it all together and publish it. Um, how do you do that? And the, at the same time, run you know, content that is right for now. A good example of that, you know, because of the lead times of monthly magazines, which are insane, in July, a magazine like Good Housekeeping would be baking, roasting turkeys and making Christmas puddings um, in order to photograph them for the Christmas issues. Mm. Meanwhile, the, the digital editors are, you know, doing sunglasses and bathing costumes. And... So how, how do you manage that in the same house? It's very difficult. Yeah. And um, yeah, we took different approaches in different parts of the world. In the US, where we had more resource, frankly, we actually created two separate parallel teams. And so we had a print team, which produced the batch-delivered product, and then um, digital teams producing like instantaneous content for now. Uh, uh, elsewhere around the world, uh, didn't have that luxury. Don't have the resources to do that. So we had to find ways of you know, doing both, um, and they did a pretty good job. I mean, honestly, um, you know, there's not much you can do about the decline in um, the print business. That's you know, just the force of kind of consumer is against you. Mm-hmm. But um, and again, I take yeah, you know, my 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 any credit for this stops for me. You know, four years ago. Um, but they've built a really good business, a really good global digital business around the, the those consumer brands.
0: Do you think they're going to continue to make acquisitions at Hearst, you know, and where would they go next? I, I'd love to get your uh, opinion on on where you think the media industry is going now. Do you think everything will exist on, on social media? So acquisitions would be really based on acquiring social media channels of really popular creators? or What do you think is like the ultimate? Yeah,
1: maybe. And honestly, I... I can't comment on on Hearst's acquisition strategy in that space. I mean, I think there was a continued view that consolidation would make sense. You know, the um the full acquisition of Rodale after I left happened across the world. And that was just a, you know, it just made sense. You know, you could you, you know, economies of scale. Mm. You know, the digital business is a tough business in in, you know, you it's a you know, it's an arbitrage business in a sense because you've still got to find the audience in a way that print businesses, the audiences came and and you know bought the magazines. but uh, you're competing uh, for audience, and so there's been and and that's not entirely in your hands because of changes in strategy from the big platform companies. so you know we moved certainly from a search based Audience when we first started building these big digital businesses, so sort of mainly an audience driven by search
0: mm-hmm.
1: and all that's implied with that in terms of how you build and write the, the content, to an audience that, that was mainly driven by social and all that's implied with that. So, um, but both, both the big social platforms and the big search platforms have had multiple changes in how they deal with publishers over that time. So you've got to be super nimble and uh, you know be flexible about business model. I mean, Hearst has now built a pretty profitable business around its digital um, assets. It's a good advertising business, but there's a there's a good uh, also um, affiliate commerce business as well, which uh,
0: is 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 very profitable. Yeah, I was going to say about the sort of transformation of monetization in publishing. There's a lot of publishers that are now moving towards acquiring sort of DTC brands and selling directly to their audiences as, as well? Those yeah, are- I think there are. Um, certainly,
1: from what I understand of future publishing in the UK, they have a very, very strong uh, direct-to-consumer commerce business. I'm not sure whether they, they're they owning the inventory or they're acting as an intermediary. I mean, w- interesting enough, we built one Amazingly, I mean to think about it now, but we built a very very good e-commerce business in Japan based on the back of l uh, the mag one of the magazines we acquired and the l shop in Japan is a is a real scale e-commerce business and um, both taking title in product but also uh, on consignment you know there are some things that are particular about the Japanese market, which makes it easier to do that than elsewhere. So, for example, you, people don't return merchandise in Japan; they're too polite. Um, so, and you get no bad debt. So, it, it, there's some there's some really good kind of market conditions. But it was quite interesting the, the the power that you could leverage from a brand that people trust, and that was certainly the case with with L in in Japan.
0: And Duncan, would you would you ever go back into the media business? Is there any sort of passion to go to go back into it and start again? Or? I mean, honestly, honestly, I kind of
1: uh, I think my corporate executive days are done. I'm very happy to advise people, but I'm uh, <laughs> I think being a corporate executive, I've kind of done that now, so I've got no urging hunger to
0: to go back in in as a operating executive. Mm. Okay, well, that brings us uh, right up to date then. So, do you want to tell us a bit about your role now at British American Business? Is there any way your role can help either UK or UK or US-based listeners uh, land and expand their businesses on either side of the Atlantic? How does How does it sort of get involved in helping those uh, transatlantic relationships?
1: Look, um, British American Business—we're we're a a a transatlantic Chamber of Commerce, so we we represent um, the interests of British companies doing business in America and American companies doing British uh, doing business in the UK. Uh, around 400 member companies, all of whom are doing business in and between the US and the UK. So, first and foremost, our our job is to be a policy voice for for those member companies. To uh, and we we come at that as a kind of pro trade, pro business voice in government on both sides of the Atlantic. So our job is to preserve and extend the kind of open liberal environment for business between the US and the UK. And it's and it's something that's really important because the US-UK economic corridor is huge and uh, has been... Enormously successful for the participants, and uh, and in in our view, as a byproduct for the two countries themselves and the populations of those two countries. So, yeah, for more than a hundred years, you know, British companies have been doing business in the states and vice versa, and um, both in trading goods and trading services, and particularly in investment, so capital being put to work across the Atlantic. It's a real success story, and our job is to protect that and to kind of remind governments that this is worth worth something. So, and to, and to continue to extend the kind of liberalisation of the trade environment, so to make it easier for companies to do business across the Atlantic. So that's really our purpose. Alongside that, we do a couple of other things as well as the policy work. We um, we are a trade promotion advocate, so we. We help companies when they're looking to expand across the Atlantic with introductions and uh, particularly SMEs, smaller and medium-sized companies. Um, Big companies don't really need our help, but small and medium-sized companies do because it's complicated navigating particularly the regulatory landscape. So we help them to do that. And then the third thing we do is we're kind of basically a networking and convening organization. So we help our members meet each other and uh, meet people that they might not otherwise meet. I got involved in this, actually, because Hearst Hearst has been in the UK for more than 100 years. And as well as owning the magazine company, of course, it owns Fitch, the ratings agency, and it owns some information businesses in the UK in the medical space. So it's always had a a UK presence and was a member of British American business. And I, I, I sat on BAB's advisory board when it was chaired as it was for 17 years, by Martin Sorrell. So I got to know the organization through Martin and uh, sitting on the advisory board. And when I left Hearst, looking around for something interesting and different to do, I ended up as the CEO. So interesting story.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Martin gets um, gets mentioned pretty much every week on this show. So brilliant. Well, he's a very interesting guy. And, uh, you know,
1: it's, it's fascinating watching... The masterclass of Martin rebuilding another uh, yeah, awesome. advertising business with S4C. I mean, it
0: really is fascinating to watch it. Yeah, we've had him on the show as well. His, oh. his particular episode was brilliant. There were so many diamonds in there. So just finally, before we close, what advice would you give to anyone listening to this podcast? So if you could give like one bit of MA advice. Oh, there's so much on
1: MA. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I I Look, the, the, the two things that always stick in my mind that advice I've been given are two, two things. First of all, don't fall in love with a deal because it sure as hell won't love you back. So you've got to be you've got to be rational. No matter how good and how exciting it looks like, don't fall in love with the deal for the deal's sake. The second thing that a piece of advice—it's a bit like being at a poker game—is there's always a maniac in every deal. And you just have to make sure it's not you. Um, <laughs> I, I, I remember one, oh my God. We were the underbidder in 1997. It's a long time ago now. But we were the... Uh, no, not 1997. 2007. Beg your pardon. We were the underbidder for the uh, EMAT magazine business mm. um, when it was put up for sale. And we tried to buy that business. And... Uh, eventually, Bauer, the, the private German company, bought it. And I remember we'd made our best our best bid. And I remember the investment bankers calling me, like late at night, saying, "We're going to lose this. We're going to lose this." You just need an, another hundred million or whatever it was. <laughs> I can't remember the numbers. And you need to make a call to Hearst to get the money. And and I eventually, I just had to put. Take the phone off the hook um, <laughs> because we knew that what we'd what we'd offered was what we could offer, and yeah. that and we were done. And in the end, I'm you know I'm glad we didn't we didn't end up as the owner.
0: Yeah, yeah, lucky escape maybe. Can you tell us um, how we can stay in touch with Duncan Edwards? Where can we? follow what you're doing online or, or what you're up to? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I mainly live on LinkedIn, so you can find
1: me. Um, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, and uh, you'll you'll see most of what I'm up to there.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time. And yeah. this is the bit where we, we yeah. open up and see if anybody who's on the call with us today wants to ask any, any questions. So maybe, John, you got any yeah, questions?
2: Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Andy and, and Duncan. I, I really in, enjoyed this. I do media M&A for a living. Um, have a small M&A firm and uh, a lot in B2B trade media. So it was so interesting to hear your stories, Duncan. We've sold things to Hearst. Um, two, two things, just comments, really. Uh, first of all, B2B pure media M&A multiples. It was amazing to hear the 10 times because... If it still has a print component to the business, the multiples are like three times right time. right right. I mean, which it's it's a buyer's market, right? You can get your money back pretty quickly if you think you can do something with a business that's not too horribly expensive and and you know, being a digital media provider requires a lot of stuff these days. You have to be good at a lot of of different things. But what's happening in 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 my world, that I love to share is that All of my buyers who are media companies and event companies want to buy agencies. Mm -hmm. The businesses that we've sold, they all have a marketing services revenue line somewhere, you know, where they're doing agency sort of stuff. But um, we haven't done a lot with pure play agencies, which is why I'm here. And I'm so happy that I've found Andy. So it's um, it's something that has started to come up in the last two years uh, last maybe five years is really going strong. Is this you know combination of of media and agency where you have agency services and you also happen to have own, own the audiences that those clients want to reach?
1: Yeah, <laughs> a couple of comments about that. Firstly, um, yeah, Hearst is less well known as a B two B business, but it's the B two B business is much much bigger now than the uh, than the consumer business. Um uh, the I mean it's interesting how that transition worked, you know. So there were Hearst used to own, you know, paper B2B magazines, and um that that's pretty much all gone. So what what was chemist and druggist is is now the world's largest database of uh, drugs and drug interactions and clinical pathways and, you know, customers from insurance companies to hospitals to uh, doctors and clinicians uh, taking a, you know, a workflow tool on subscription rather than a print magazine. And it's been an amazing transformation. On the other point, all I can tell you is we... we (laughs) I hope my old colleagues won't mind me saying this, but we had the same idea. So at Hearst, we, we thought, well, well, we'll get a market in the Hearst consumer business, we'll have a marketing services element. And so back in the day, must be, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, we, we bought a, uh, a digital agency. We bought iCrossing. And, uh, you know, that, that, They won't mind me saying that has not been the most successful transaction that Hearst has ever done. And it's no surprise that we didn't do any more. So I'm sure we tell the story against ourselves that we couldn't work out how you could put these two things together. It didn't feel like they had the same customers, the same logic. So... And, and and I'm sure it may be different in B2B, but in B2C, we just couldn't make that work. So they ended up being run in parallel without any of the synergies, without any of the either revenue synergies or cost synergies,
0: frankly, that you would expect. It's super high profile, there, wasn't it? That, that acquisition.
1: Yeah, it was because it was...
0: I don't know. It was
1: such a unusual thing for, for Hearst to buy an, ad, an an agency, and it was a pretty it was a pretty traditional search agency eye crossing at the time. You know that's what it did, and uh, yeah, it's also one of those ones where we thought it was a good deal, so we paid a high price, and because uh, we wanted it, and there was a lot of competition for that at the time. You know, multiples were very high for those kind of agencies, and they still are, I'm sure. Um, so. Okay. these days I, I also I'm also a non executive director at a kind of um, a early stage business as well, um a trends forecasting agency, uh, agency called Stylus, which is super interesting. So I get to kind of see some of the dynamics of those early stage digital businesses as well. and um, yeah there's some there's some big opportunities there there's no no doubt about that.
0: Mm. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much, Duncan. So if you're watching or listening to the show now, make make sure you subscribe, click the subscribe button. And uh, obviously M&A Q&A is every week. So we'll see you next week. Thank you again, everybody who's who's here on the call. Thank you, obviously, to Duncan Edwards for everything that we've learned from you today. Catch
1: Thanks, you. Andy. Good to chat with you. Speak soon. Yeah,
0: bye. Cheers, guys.